Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. Uh, my name is Finn Arne Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And today we have with us Eric Nordman, who's Professor of Natural Resources Management uh, and Adjunct Professor of Economics at Grand Valley State University in Michigan, uh, United States. Uh, and he will talk about his book, The Uncommon Knowledge of Eleanor Ostrom, Essential Lessons for Collective Action. So we're just going to leave it over to you, Eric. Great. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to uh, speak with you all. Um, yeah, so I, in this book started um, several years ago. So I was on sabbatical in 2019 and 2020 and uh, had decided that I was going to write a book about Eleanor Ostrom. Why? <laughs> Mostly because um, you know I teach undergraduates and I teach uh, natural resource policy and environmental economics. So I've been teaching about Ostrom's ideas to my undergraduate students, but I found that there wasn't a really good resource for undergraduates or, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I uh, contacted the Ostrom workshop at Indiana University where uh, Ostrom was a professor for her entire career along with her husband, Vincent Ostrom. And uh, while they both died in 2012, uh, the workshop that they started, uh, this research center, which they call the workshop intentionally, um, that's still going strong. And they encourage folks from all over the world to come uh, and be a visiting scholar for a week, a month, a year, um, you know, any amount of time to immerse yourself in the culture and learn about um, the Ostrom's work and how it's being applied today. So it's a really vibrant space and it was a fantastic opportunity to learn from them, uh, the scholars uh, and other visitors there. So I really appreciate uh, Indiana University and the colleagues at the Ostrom Workshop for that opportunity. Um, and I live in Michigan, which is just about a five hour drive away. So I could come and go uh, spend a few days there and come back. Um, so the, the book really is part of it is a biography and part of it is um, interviews with people who live in these communities, these resource using communities. Um, so my colleagues and I, I, I collaborated with uh, Jason Roblando, who's a photographer at uh, Illinois State University. Uh, we went to Maine to talk to uh, lobster harvesters and we went to Spain uh, to talk to farmers who live in the uh, Valencia irrigation community and really get their perspective of the people in those communities um, because that's how really Ostrom operated too. It wasn't like she came up with this idea and told people, you know, this is how you manage a commons. It was really her building this theory up from the bottom that people living in these communities for sometimes thousands of years had developed rules and what she called institutions to govern their uh, shared resources. And she pulled all these stories from sociology, from forestry, from you know fisheries conservation that were kind of in these silos. And um, it wasn't like nobody knew about it, but nobody was able to uh, put it all together. Um, so that's really uh, what her contribution was, showing that um, countering Garrett Hardin's idea that a, a shared resource like a commons would always be depleted. Um, so it's hard to talk about Ostrom without also talking about Garrett Hardin, and maybe I'll just touch on that for a moment. Um, 
So Garrett Hardin was an ecologist who wrote the famous essay, The Tragedy of the Commons, um, and coined that phrase. Uh, it, he said that if we have a shared resource, like a common pasture or a fishery, that um, each person would act in their own self-interest, very ra a rational self-interest, uh, to maximize their own benefit, but disperse the costs onto the other users. And following that rational self-interest, we would catch all the fish, we would overgraze a shared pasture, uh, et cetera. And the only, he's, he said there were only two ways to avoid this, um, this outcome were either to privatize it and let markets allocate those resources efficiently, but then you have no shared resource anymore. So the commons is gone or have government impose restrictions on people because the resource users themselves, he thought were incapable of overcoming those uh, private incentives. And that's where that phrase, the tragedy of the commons really comes from. Um, it's in that Greek tragic sense where, you know, in a, a Greek tragic play, the oracle, you know, speaks at the beginning of the play. And this is how it's going to, this is how life is going to go. Um, and there's the interesting part of the, the play is, well, how do these people try to get around it? But you know, at the end, you know, the fate has been foretold. Uh, Hardin also thought that's, you know, that's what would happen. The, you know, it, um, his famous phrase is ruin is the destination towards which all men rush uh, in a commons. Um, so Ostrom was a graduate student in the 1960s uh, when, uh, actually before Hardin's uh, essay was published, and she was working with water managers in the Los Angeles area and documenting how these municipal water engineers came together to sustain this shared aquifer in the West Basin of Los Angeles. So when Hardin's work came out and got all this attention, she knew that the story was incomplete, um, that there was more to the story. And there really was a third way that people can overcome their private incentives and work together uh, to establish rules on how to successfully uh, self-govern a commons. So that, that self-governance uh, through collective action is really a third way of managing this resource. Um, so the book starts with an introduction and then um, an introduction to this idea of the tragedy of the commons and why this is a problem. Um, and then traces the evolution of Ostrom's ideas from you know, her work as a graduate student in Los Angeles and then um, applying her ideas, well, showing how her ideas evolved from some uh, just a, a selection of these case studies, uh, lobster harvesters in Maine, uh, farmers in the irrigation communities around Valencia, um, forest uh, commons communities all around the world. And you know, through that, she and her colleagues built this, this theory of common pool resources and these design principles. So she came up with these eight design principles for how to sustain a commons. Um, after that kind of bio, uh, biographical um, evolution, in the later chapters of the book, I show how her ideas are being applied uh, to global commons. But her ideas were really influential on the Paris Agreement's decentralized structure, that instead of having one 
you know, top-down policy, you know, a global carbon tax, for example, uh, the Paris Agreement um, encourages a, a shared, um, you know, a shared set of goals, but each country gets to determine how it's going to, to meet it. So there are individual pledges, and we hold one another responsible uh, for meeting those pledges at a national level. Um, her ideas are also being used to, um, to manage resources in outer space. Uh, so orbits, satellite orbits are a commons. Um, space resources in general have lots of different property types. There are, there might be private property for, you know, if a company, for example, captures an asteroid, you know, maybe that's going to be a, a private property, but there will be um, the Outer Space Treaty and uh, other agreements um, don't necessarily encourage private property and ownership of resources on the moon, for example. So there's lots of different ways that uh, Ostrom's ideas are being used to govern these space resources. And then the last chapters uh, talk about her applications of knowledge commons and information, especially in cyberspace. Um, so how do we govern not only the, the hardware, the, like these computers have to talk to each other, so we have to have agreed upon rules um, among the internet providers themselves, but also how do we selectively uh, encourage people to contribute knowledge, um, but also we wanna keep some of that private, like you know your banking information, for example. Uh, so there's lots of interesting work coming out of the Ostrom workshop now about um, internet commons, uh, knowledge commons, cybersecurity, and how do we apply her ideas there. Um, so it's really come a long way from her you know, work on the early days of water resources. And uh, you know, it's just a principle of you know, systems theory that if we look at these as a systems problem, we can see how they, her ideas, you know, may or may not apply in these various situations. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a brief overview of the book. And uh, it's, it's written in a more uh, journalistic style. So it's, it's not a textbook in the classic sense. So it's very accessible to um, undergraduates, young people, uh, people outside of academia who just may have heard about Eleanor Ostrom but have been a little hesitant to dive into, say, governing the commons, which is, you know, a, a rather challenging read for for lots of folks. This is an easy introduction to her ideas. Well, it's great. I think we need to have kind of some of these texts that move beyond kind of academic speak and and actually engage with the ideas in a way that the general public and undergraduates, as you say, um, can understand what they're talking about. I think that's probably. One of the reasons that, you know, also the tragedy of the commons uh, article had become so uh, salient in, in discourse is because it's rather easy to read. Um, it's not making a, a, a big theoretical argument. And of course, that's where it fails <laughs> in, the, right. in its idea. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I think it's a really good thing to bring these ideas forward. So, um, so I was wondering then in her, you know, starting with water and water resources, um, how do you think that impacted the trajectory of where she goes with 
her ideas. So this very specific situatedness in, um, I think you said it was Los Angeles. Um, mm -hmm. So, so how, how do you think that affected what she comes up with? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, she, so she worked on this water problem, this water challenge as a graduate student um, in political science. And she came at it from this perspective of public entrepreneurship. She was not a natural resources or environment person. She came to this as, oh, here's an interesting example of these public entrepreneurs, these creative um, you know, public employees who saw a problem and found a way to overcome it. And that's kind of where she, where her interest was. The fact that it was water was kind of um, inconsequential or, or just a, a side thing. She never actually published her dissertation work until it was a chapter in uh, Governing the Commons, which was came out in 1990, so almost 30 years later. In between, um, throughout the 1970s, she worked on other, uh, other academic problems in public entrepreneurship and municipal governance. Um, so policing, police studies was a big uh, focus for her throughout the 1970s. Um, she was, along with Vincent and her husband, Vincent, and others, looking at this issue of consolidation in government. In the 1960s and 70s, there was a big push for consolidation and efficiency. That why, oh, you have all these different departments, there's duplicating services, why not just have, instead of having lots of police departments at a local level, why don't we just have one countywide police department? And she found that those local police departments were much more responsive to the needs of the community. And the sense that law and order is not something to be imposed on a community, but um, how do I want to say it? Um, it arises from, it's a service that's co-produced by the people working with police departments. Um, public safety is, is, is a, a co-produced service. Um, so it wasn't until that she went on sabbatical in Germany in the 19, around 1980, 1982, um, where someone asked about her work on water resources, like, oh, you did that thing in Los Angeles. You know, that was 20 years ago. Is it still, you know, does it still hold? So she assigned a graduate student, Bill Bloomquist, to go take a look at it, revisit it in the 80s. And that's where things started to click. And she started to look at these, getting more involved in natural resource commons, um, getting involved with a, a larger community of researchers, um, with, and then you know, put these case studies together. So to follow up then on this idea of a lot of these case studies and examples on the common first are based in local communities. And then you talked about global commons and even then like space commons too, uh, where you work at an entirely different level of, I mean, almost abstraction because uh, you're, you're governing much bigger things then. Uh, could you say something on in a way the tensions then between this, this 
local and the global and how you do this. I mean, uh, communities versus mm -hmm. distributed governance mm -hmm. and so on. Because I don't think it's like necessarily super easy. So I'm curious about how to do this, you know, thinking global climate change and mm -hmm. uh, stuff and so on. Yes. So at the end of her life, um, she won the Nobel Prize in 2009. Uh, she passed away in 2012. And during that time, she really was turning her attention to these issues of global commons, uh, like climate change. And she wrote... Um, she wrote a paper way back in 1992 um, with Michael McGinnis, her colleague at the workshop, about climate change as a, a global commons and do these ideas um, apply. But then kind of went away from that and came back to it around 2009. Um, and she thought that they, you know, having this a single global solution was not going to be that. You're, this is not going to happen. We're never ever going to be able to agree on one solution. So the it has to be somewhat decentralized. Or her word was polycentric, have many centers of decision making, and that's really comes back to the eighth design principle that she came up with, is that comp, large complex systems. Um, are more successful when they're broken up into nested layers of decision-making hierarchies. Um, so when you have a global commons like climate, it's hard to tackle it as one unit. Um, we have a common problem, but we don't necessarily have to have identical solutions at lower levels. Um, so that, that Paris Agreement, for example, has this pledge and review system where we all agree that uh, climate change is a problem and we wanna limit additional warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. But that's, you know, that's it as far as the prescription goes. It's up to individual um, countries to come up with their own solutions, whether it's gonna be a carbon tax, whether it's gonna be regulations, cap and trade, um, your border carbon adjustments. You know, there are lots and lots of different ways each individual country and even groups of countries like the European Union working together can achieve that. Um, another thing that she emphasized was solving the problem. Uh, well, the, the level of the solution needs to match the scale of the problem. Uh, so you want to be able to have, you, you can decentralize things too much. And then, you know, it's, people aren't connected to the problem or not necessarily, um, well, you, you run into that kind of tragedy of the commons framework if it's too decentralized where, you know, me personally, I'm doing these things to reduce carbon emissions or reduce my fishing catch, but everybody else is not doing that. And she often said, nobody wants to be a sucker, right? If nobody's going to take this, um, conservative approach if if others aren't doing it. So um, you, know, you need to go up a level and have some sort of agreement at that. So the, the scale of the problem needs to match the scale of the solution. And in a hierarchy, you can do that, um, but you don't necessarily have to have uniform, you know, one size fits all approach. Well, I was really curious about um, them calling their 
well, lab, research group, center, whatever, a workshop. And so I was wondering how, well, if you have some insights into why they'd called it a workshop and what work they were shopping, <laughs> right, um, in, in such a setup. Yeah, that's a really interesting backstory there. Uh, there, are, there are two reasons why uh, they called it a workshop. There was one reason was that there was no such thing as a workshop at Indiana University. There were formal definitions and rules around being a research center or a program. And they said, well, we're a workshop, so your rules don't apply. <laughs> so that was one kind of sneaky way they were trying to get around some of the formal structures. But more intentionally, um, actually Vincent Ostrom was an amateur woodworker. And when they moved to Indiana, he actually apprenticed with a master carpenter in the area and was learning how to build cabinets and tables and things like that. And they really wanted to bring that approach into academia that they saw, you know, it wasn't just, I'm the, the sage on the stage, you know, imparting wisdom to these students. It's that the, the students would work side by side with the professors like an apprentice um, and learn the trade uh, from the, the professionals. So that's really where it comes from. And if you go to the workshop, you can see some of the furniture that they built. Some tables and desks are still there. That's fascinating, having just ourselves moved from kind of this nebulous, oh, well, we're not a center thing, um, to mm -hmm. being a center. Uh, that whole negotiation about what you call something. Uh, yes. Yeah, I can totally sympathize <laughs> with Ostrom's in, in their choice. Mm -hmm. um, so I was um, also wondering about her writing process. Um, what do you know about kind of how she came and, and worked through her ideas then in this workshop setting? Because um, I noticed the picture on the cover, right? So it mm -hmm. is a, it is her, but it is her at work writing. Yes. Um, and so what do we know about her as a writer? Um, th so that picture that's on the cover of the book, um, yeah, she is writing, she's at work. That is from uh, their cabin on Manitoulin Island in uh, Lake Huron, on the Canadian side of Lake Huron. Um, that's a place that they built themselves, you know, as amateur woodworkers, they built that cabin. And they spent just about every summer there for, I think, 30 years. And this was long before the days of the, uh, of the internet. And it was very remote. So they would go up there at the beginning of the summer and it was an intensive reading and writing, um, you know, summer. Uh, they would once a week go to the post office in town and they would bring their box of materials to send back, you know, papers and whatnot to send back to campus. And then they would pick up the, the box uh, for that week. Um, yeah, and also, uh, it was a summer of contestation. And then that's really what part of the writing process was. If you look at the, actually, the opening page to Governing the Commons, um, it's dedicated to Vincent for his love and contestation. And they really, um, 
had this relationship where they they contested their ideas. They were challenging one another, um, always respectfully, but there was this sense of we're going to like hash out these these um, intellectual arguments. Um, so they had kind of like their desks uh, partitioned, but like facing one another so they could pop around the edge and, and talk about it. Um, but yeah, she was a prolific writer and, um, and, and a great collaborator too. She worked with lots of different types of uh, academics from sociologists and anthropologists, um, foresters, et cetera, you know, all over the campus and all over the world. I mean, that's of course interesting uh, for us, uh, being also a married couple to think about mm -hmm. the ways in which you have that relationship with somebody who, you know, makes your writing uh, better um, because they challenge you on things you've said. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yes, but to have an entire summer off with just some boxes and going by the post office once a week is like, <laughs> wow, um, <laughs> right. you know, these days, um, you know. Did they have kids? They did not have kids together. So okay. um, Vincent was married before and he had two children uh, with his first wife, um, but uh, one passed away in a car accident, uh, relatively young. He was like 18 or 20. And then the other uh, was had a disability and didn't live very long. I think he passed away when he was like 40. Um, but Lynn, Eleanor did not have any of her own children. Mm -hmm. Interesting to think about then. Um, mm -hmm. Johan had a question about overfishing. So marine overfishing is still often today framed as a problem of the tragedy of the commons. That's how people often talk about it. Um, but should we be talking about the problem as free entrance for particular kinds of vessels? So large ships or trawlers. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why overfishing perhaps more than any other environmental problem keeps being understood as a tragedy of the commons. So how, yeah, so, how might we use, you know, Eleanor's ideas here? Right. So Hardin used this phrase, a commons, which has a formal definition um, that it's well, that it's a shared resource. Somebody owns a commons and it's the community, right? And the community can establish rules about who has access or who doesn't. Um, when it comes to marine overfishing, especially, what we're really talking about is an open access resource. Uh, so, you know, the deep sea beyond national jurisdictions, um, where we talk, like you said, about free entrance, um, that's really where you can where Hardin's ideas really play out in their purest form. Um, and Ostrom didn't deny that these that what she called the commons dilemma. You know, she said it's real. Like there are situations like this. But what Hardin got wrong is that there are not just two solutions: markets and states you know, just privatize it or have state regulation, that there is this third way of collaborative governance. Um, so when it comes to marine overfishing, um, that is a, itself a big topic. Um, so it, it's often useful to be more specific about it, like space resources, you know, space is a big topic, but we're really talking about satellite orbits, 
for the moon and lunar ice or settlements. So with marine resources, we may be thinking about particular fisheries, uh, particular types of vessels and harvesting materials, or um, or even deep sea mining and, and those manganese nodules that are I read about recently in the news. Um, so there are different approaches uh, where you can bring those communities together to find shared solutions. And Ostrom said that these things are messy and they're complicated uh, and they don't always look pretty. It's not a, a nice, economists tend to like elegant, efficient solutions, but these, uh, these community-based uh, collective action approaches are often very messy, you know, based on traditions and, you know, complicated ways of doing things, but they tend to work. They can be durable. Um, so in the fishing communities, um, yeah, it's a real challenge. And I don't have a particular solution in mind when it comes to marine fishing in the, uh, you know, international waters. Um, but bringing those stakeholders together and finding shared solutions seems to be possible. And hopefully that will, we can do something about that. So I was wondering about uh, the reception and use of Ostrom's work. Um, so if you could say something, I mean, A, on, you know, how, because we, you know, we can see how they generally use this insights, but are there specific cases of her work being used in policy settings, like explicitly? Um, and second, then, do you see examples of politicization of her work. I mean, I'm particularly thinking of in a way the American context where things have gotten very uh, polarized, very ideological partisan politics where in a way common sense gets thrown out of the window, right? And I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of common sense in, in Ostrom's work too. So could you say something on that? Yeah. Um, in terms of, of policy, the direct connection to policy, I would say that you, I haven't seen it a lot. And I think that's part of the challenge is that her work is very well known in a certain community, you know, in academia. Um, she was the president of the American Political Science um, uh, Society and, you know, of course, won the Nobel Prize and was friends with other Nobel Prize winners. Uh, like Douglas North, um, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work in like economic history and institutions. Um, but kind of outside that near that narrow area, she was not as well known. Um, even Paul Krugman, who writes for the New York Times and won the Nobel Prize uh, in the 90s for his work in economics, uh, he didn't know who she was when she won. He had to go, he had to Google her and find out. So in some ways, her ideas are were revolutionary, but they haven't really gotten, I think, the attention outside of that narrow area. Uh, so hopefully the this book will, you know, start that conversation and get get it out there more. Um, uh, and about polarization, one thing I found writing this is that her ideas uh, really appeal across the political spectrum. The libertarians, so like on Twitter, for example, um, you know, I have 
I see conversations about Ostrom's work from libertarians who say, look, you don't need to uh, have big government solutions all the time. Uh, you know, this is a, this co collaborative approach uh, from the bottom up is very attractive as to me as a libertarian. You also have, uh, you know, people on the left who say, look, you don't have to privatize everything. And it's not all about markets that we can come together collectively. And that's very attractive to me as a person on, you know, the left. So you have this, um, this third way really is appealing to a, a large swath of folks across the political spectrum. Um, and I think it's really uh, a good opportunity for, for working together. All right, Mike has a question. I will unmute you, Mike. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I can also switch on a video. You don't want my video? Okay, that's fine. Um, Eric, uh, uh, great to, um, to to meet you online. We, we initially had a bit of a Twitter exchange a while ago yes. when your book first came out. Um, I just wanted to pick up on your on a point you've raised now about the idea is not spreading much further than a narrow kind of range of academia. So, you know, I work in African wildlife conservation and it's a source of huge, huge frustration to me to continually still, how many years later are we talking? You know, we're into decades now. Right. Still hearing people uh, telling me that we cannot devolve rights to local communities, that we really you know need to keep our fences up because local communities represent a threat to wildlife conservation because of the tragedy of the commons you know and this is mm -hmm. still being trotted out day after day after day it, it really is a source of huge disappointment and frustration to me which is why i i picked up on your on, on the on the book when it was when it was first published um thanks but i wonder if uh uh, you've got any ideas then, you know, to, I guess a challenge to you really, I mean, you've kind of partly met the challenge by producing the book, but how, how do we get these ideas into the mainstream working wildlife conservationists or, or, or people who work with any kind of common pool resource, you know, how are we, how are we going to do this? It's, it's long, long overdue. It is. And thanks a lot, Mike, for your question. Um, I think part of the challenge is the tragedy of the commons framework, it's so easy to understand. Like you just kind of get it. It's got a catchy name. Um, you know, it falls into just this easy storytelling framework, even though it's at best incomplete or, you know, it might say it's wrong. Um, but because it's so easy to understand, it's it. I think that's really one of the keys of why it persists. Um, contrast that with Ostrom's eight design principles. You know, it's they're clunky. You don't have that neat little story to tell. Um, and you know, I think it is generational as well that the folks that were you know reading you know, the original publication of the tragedy of the commons in 1968 are really just you know now retiring you know from their professions and you know we have to um 
we have to be teaching Ostrom's ideas and telling our students at you know the high school level, the university level that you know Ostrom's work presents a more comprehensive picture of how a common pool resource can be managed. Um, but that that takes generations of people to get from you know students you know into careers and into those leadership positions where they can affect that change. Um, so yeah, it's a it is a hard, tough challenge, and we need to. We should have been doing this years ago, decades ago, um, but there's no better time to start than today. So I'm really hoping that this book can open up that conversation. Um, I encourage more people to you know write about these ideas and spread the word. There have been other some really other fantastic books that have come out lately, uh, more on the academic side. Um, uh, one of them is Eleanor Ostrom and the Bloomington School. Um, and it puts her work in more of the context of political science and things like that, not so much about natural resources. But it's, um, I think people are taking another look at her ideas uh, today. They're gonna to be really useful going forward. So hopefully we can get those young people um, you know, educated about the limitations of that tragedy of the commons model and the opportunities uh, for, you know, this polycentric, more decentralized collaborative approach to managing all kinds of resources. Well, and one of the things that strikes me about Mike's uh, situation and, and question, and I think it affected greatly, of course, Hardin himself, is colonialism um, as a context um, and racism as a context in the case mm -hmm. of, of Hardin. And so uh, that we are still in, um, in many ways, the colonial mindset. And, and we're trying, I guess, as, as academics, many of us to push, you know, moving towards decolonialism uh, as, as the mindset that, that local populations actually were doing just fine um, before you, you know, white Europeans came and took things away or, you know, uh, North American uh, mm -hmm. settlers that moved across the continent, you know, they, they were actually managing things. Um, but the colonialist and racist mindset that would say, oh, but they were too simple and they, they don't understand, you know, governmental structure. Um, right. And so I think Ostrom has a, has a part to play then in that re-centering re local communities. Yeah, I want to emphasize that she came up with these design principles, which was, you know, amazing, but the work was done by those local communities over thousands of years, where they on their own figured out how to manage these resources. Um, one chapter that I'd hoped to write about and unfortunately wasn't able to just ran out of time uh, was Maasai pastoralists in East Africa and uh, their collaborative approach to managing uh, cattle and grazing. Um, so just just ran out of time and, and money, frankly. <laughs> uh, but so there's some now you'll work done by Esther Mwangi um, on that. Yeah, so now, now you, you'll have an article that needs to be written, I guess, Eric. <laughs> um, so Ellen had a question about your book and the balance between biography, so Eleanor's life, and intellectual history, you know, the, the history of an idea um, and how that develops. So how did you negotiate that in reading, in writing this particular book? So her as a person versus kind of the ideas that she's engaging with. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, that was a challenge. And really, I kind of, I mean, I'll just say I, I really cheated because I, I read a lot of, I try to read a lot of books and I really like the work of um, Elizabeth Colbert who wrote um, Field Notes from a Catastrophe and um, The Sixth Extinction and Under a White Sky. And I really liked her approach where she, you know, as a journalist, went to, you know, visit a scientist, you know, researching Greenland ice sheet melting or, you know, um, you know, things like that. So she interviewed scientists and they told their story about the work that they're doing, like from the field. And I kind of wanted to bring that journalistic style, even though I'm not a journalist, this is the first book I wrote. So I can't, um, a lot of it was just learning as I, as I went along, but I, I had a sense of, I want to tell the, tell her story, you know, in, in a biography of, and how her ideas evolved, but also, um, you know, let the people in those communities tell their own story about how they manage the resources um, that went into the case studies that Ostrom used. So that, finding that balance uh, was tricky. It was a lot of editing, but I mean, from a writing perspective, um, once I kind of got into the flow, it, it, you know, just having people tell me <laughs> the story was the easy part. Well, Fayaz had a question here about the boundaries or how Ostrom maybe sets up a boundaries between the market, the state, and the community. Because if you say, well, market and state are the two proposals by Hardin, mm -hmm. she's saying it's community. But where are those lines in our modern world between state, community, and market? Mm-hmm. Excellent question. And I, she often said, and this was, I mean, she said this a lot, there are no panaceas that community, you know, collaborative collective action is not the only way or the necessarily the best way that markets might be appropriate and regulations might be appropriate and collective action might be appropriate. And really what we see in complex systems is a mix of all these things, right? Um, so, you know, in Valencia, for example, I've got a, a picture there by uh, Jason Roblando of the, of the canals um, in Valencia. And those are farmers who manage the canals themselves. They, they organize and they elect leaders of their canal districts to sit on this water court. So it is, you know, bottom up collective action, collaboration to, to manage this canal system. But it's also for profit. I mean, they're, they're farmers who are selling a crop, so there are markets involved. And with those markets come private property rights and, and all of that stuff. Um, and there's also this water court that meets every Thursday to handle disputes. Um, so there's a justice function. So if I leave the gate open and flood my neighbor's field, you know, we could bring the dispute to the water court and then they can, they can resolve it. Um, so there is, there is a regulation function even within that community. So there is, it's not necessarily a neat, um, you know, division between markets or states or collective action. Um, 
it, it, it does blend across all these fields, but you can, you can see that one might dominate in a particular situation. So I really like the way that uh, the workshop then continues to build on these ideas and you know, apply it in new contexts and, and explore then the boundaries of these ideas. Uh, could you say something about what you see as the, the greatest challenges or the greatest problems that people there are working on right now in applying uh, her ideas? Hmm. The biggest, um, the biggest challenges. So the the workshop is organized into several program areas. Um, so there's, you know, the the history. Uh, well, there's a big historical institutional history around natural resource commons. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, but the emerging program areas that have recently been established are in these information commons, knowledge commons, um, and also cyber, uh, the computer internet world and commons around that, which are, they're distinct, but they're related. So knowledge commons and information commons are kind of more, um, more general in some ways that you don't have to be on the internet. We're talking about book publishing, um, you know, and privatizing information access versus uh, open access journals and things like that. Um, whereas the cyber part is really about cybersecurity and the physical internet of like how these computers talk to one another. So I think those, um, those seem to be new applications that are growing. And I know Angie Raymond, who, uh, She's the program director for the information um, commons. She said uh, to me that we're all just, we're really just babies in this. Like we, this is really brand new stuff and we don't know exactly how it's going to evolve or you know, what the limitations of applying you know, Ostrom's design principles, for example, or polycentric ideas you know, to this world. It seems to apply. It seems to be generating a lot of interest um, and discussion, but we don't really know where it's going to go. Well, since Ostrom had this polycentric idea and, and an idea that one should, you know, match the, the solution to the problem in terms of its level, um, Nils had a question about her own hands-on political work. Was, was she in any way a, an activist working at a, a local or or even other levels um, to, you know, affect political change? Or was that not something that she was involved in? That's a good question. And so all these questions have been fantastic. I keep saying that, but um, that was also a question that interested me. And it turns out from my research and conversations, she was not very politically active as an advocate or activist. Um, she really kept her, you know, focus on academic questions. Um, however, later in life, especially after she won the Nobel Prize and, you know, had personal attention, you know, directed at her, uh, she did feel a sense uh, that she did need to step forward a little bit. 
um, especially as a, you know, the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in economics, um, she really talked about that a lot more. Um, so early in her career, um, she was actually, she wanted to get a PhD in economics, but was denied by UCLA. They did not want women in the economics program. They thought, well, you're not going to amount to anything. You're, you know, maybe you'll get a job teaching high school or, or God forbid, community college. And, you know, you're just going to be a drain on our reputation as a, you know, institution. Um, so that's why she went into political science. The, they, the political science department hadn't had a woman graduate student in decades. So the university said, you have to let some women in. So they, uh, Ostrom was part of a co cohort or four or five students, female students uh, who entered the PhD program. And so she talked a lot more about that uh, later in her life. I mean, I've, I found this very interesting how, um, yeah, how she wasn't an economist, but won a Nobel Prize in economics. Um, yes. So, so what did she, I mean, obviously she has this backstory of wanting to be an economist, but I guess my question is, what does that say um, as a message um, that, that somebody who wasn't an economist was given an economy prize? The Nobel Prize in economics is defined as having, you know, for people who have an, an impact on the economics profession. Uh, so it's been awarded to psychologists, um, game theorists, mathematicians. So anybody who is having an, an impact on the, the profession or the discipline of economics is eligible. Um, so as a political scientist who studied institutions, um, not just like elections, like regular, most political scientists might do, she was studying these institutions of how people come together to solve these problems um, and establish rules. And that fits into this um, aspect of where political science and economics overlap in political economy, or institutional economics. Um, so that's kind of where she fits into that. But that award was controversial in the economics community. A lot of them, a lot of economists were very outspoken saying, uh, this person's not a real economist and you know they, sh they shouldn't be giving the award away to somebody like her, which gets into you know the discrimination and uh, misogyny that's kind of part of her story all along. All right, so we should wrap up then. So uh, just a big thank you to Eric Nordman for discussing uh, your book, The Uncommon Knowledge of Eleanor Ostromodos. It was really interesting uh, and some really good insights, I think, here. And also thank you to everyone in the audience for excellent questions. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. <laughs>